Welcome to today's reading of the Daily Nonpareil for Monday, January 29th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. System Failing Kids. Reynolds responds to concerns regarding AEA Bill. This is by Caitlin Yamada out of the Sioux City Journal and out of Sioux City. Governor Kim Reynolds says the bill amending area education agencies in Iowa is about improving special education services and giving school districts local control over how they receive those services. Reynolds, in an interview with the Sioux City Journal Friday, said the AEA system, as it stands now, is failing students with disabilities while making it so that school districts have no idea what they are paying for. We're the only state in the entire country that takes that education money, the special education money, bypasses the school districts, gives it to the AEA, and then tells the school districts they're mandated to use the AEA services, she said. And if you ask school board after school board, they have no idea what they're paying for the services. Earlier this week, the Northwest AEA, as well as local superintendents, and the Sioux City School Board reacted to a proposed bill reforming the state's nine regional area education agencies created in the 1970s to provide special education support for school districts. Reynolds said the bill was worked on while the legislature was out of session. I tried to put a bill together that was respective of rural Iowa, some of our larger school districts, and try to find a balance about how we move forward with this, she said. The AEA system, as it is today and over the last 20 years, is failing our kids with disabilities. Local school entities expressed concerns and questions about various aspects of the bill, including who has oversight of the AEA, what services the AEA can provide, how the money is distributed, and more. Reynolds said the legislation is intended to address the state's poor special education test results and review how the money given to the AEAs is being used. $529 million going into a system that has no accountability or transparency with horrible results, she said. I have an obligation to the people and Iowa and to the taxpayers and to these kids, most importantly, to make sure that these dollars are being used in the right way. The 2023 State of Iowa School Performance Profile shows that 25.56% of students with disabilities were proficient in English language arts and 28.14% were proficient in mathematics. The scores represent a 45.84% gap between students with disabilities and other students in English and a 41.36% gap in mathematics. Reynolds also said the U.S. Department of Education had designated Iowa as needed assistance with compliance of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. It's unconscionable that we continue to see the gaps that we are and not look at doing something differently, she said. By giving schools the ability to decide, you start to bring in some accountability. Like other departments in the state, Reynolds said there should be regular evaluations on how special education services are being delivered and whether or not they're meeting the mark. We have some good ones out there, she said, but we have some school districts that aren't happy with the services that they're getting, and so this would give them the option to do something different. The bill will give school districts more options on how they receive special education services and how they use the funding currently given to the AEA. Currently, all state and federal funding allocated for special education goes to the school district, but is immediately funneled to the AEA. The bill would give districts the option to keep that funding and allocate it for special education services as they choose. 
The money goes to the school districts. They're the customer. They need to know what these services cost, and they should be in charge of it to start to bring some accountability and some transparency to the system, Reynolds said. She said she hears from school districts that they want local control. If you control the money, you control the services, said Sioux City School Board member Dan Greenwell. He said the bill gives the district the option to decide how the funding is used. Sioux City School member School Board member Lance Emke agreed with Greenwell, saying it would be a good thing to have a voice in how the AEA money is spent. Greenwell said he does not have an understanding of how much media services or professional development the district utilizes. Reynolds said this is a common complaint. For example, she said the AEAs receive funding for media services from the state, but then charge districts to use those services. That doesn't sound very efficient and effective to me because we're paying for it twice. She said, and we're discovering more and more and more of that as we look into the system. Local administrators expressed concerns regarding shifting the oversight of the AEAs to the Department of Education. I don't have a lot of faith that the Department of Education can take this on and oversee special education in all the school districts across the state, Earlywine said. I have a big concern with that, and I think most of the superintendents in the state would mirror that. Chad Jansen, superintendent of the Sergeant Bluff Lutton Community School District, said the AEA provides vital resources and training to the districts. Our local AEA has been responsive to local needs. For example, area schools have asked for increased services in working with students who have English language needs, he said. A centralized system located in Des Moines will not respond to local needs as adeptly as a local system. Reynolds said 25 years ago, the AEAs were overseen by the Iowa Department of Education, and now the AEAs need the checks and balances the department will provide. She said those people will be in the regions they oversee, not in Des Moines. She said right now, 400 people in the AEA system provide compliance and oversight. After a review of those positions by the Department of Education, Reynolds said they can do that work with 109 full-time employees. I'm sorry, did I say 139? 139 full-time employees. The Northwest AEA and Sioux City School Board members asked why no comprehensive review took place before this bill was introduced, citing the most recent review was in 2010. Reynolds said the true review of the system is the state's test scores and the reviews done by the U.S. Department of Education and the nation's report card. I actually did bring in some superintendents, sat down, and walked through the system, Reynolds said. They're afraid of being penalized by the AEA, so they were afraid to stand up and say anything publicly. She also said she received feedback on the AEAs during her travels through the state, speaking with education, parents, principals, and superintendents. What I was hearing is they weren't happy with a lot of the services. There was no consistency. They weren't showing up, she said. She said the state has consistently underperformed and the students in the system deserve a corrected system. Of the $529 million currently allocated to the AEAs, Reynolds said $294 million will go to local schools, $117 million would still go to the AEAs, and $25 million will go to the Iowa Department of Education for supervision. We are not taking any money out of special education, she said. Her bill, as currently written, would eliminate property taxes that are collected to support AEA functions that are not related to special education. Reynolds proposed an amended version that would allow the AEAs to continue providing general education services and media services. 
the agencies would continue to provide all the special education services they do now. Reynolds said currently AEA chiefs receive approximately $410,000 in compensation, but many are making around $440,000. She said the savings from reducing overhead will stay in the education system and will be used to help teachers and students receive the services they need. A part of the bill that is not directly related to the AEA would increase the base pay for teachers. Sioux City School Board members said they felt like it was a way to make the bill more appealing. Reynolds is asking the Iowa legislature to invest $96 million in new money to increase starting teacher pay by 50% to $50,000 and to set a minimum salary of $62,000 for teachers with at least 12 years of experience. It smacks of the, that the AEA change is going to be so consequential in a negative way that the only way we can get the voting public in the legislature to go along with it is to offer something like increased teacher pay, Emke said. Board Vice President Trela Lee said it appears the teacher's salary was a little carrot in the bill as a reward for passing the AEA changes. Reynolds said increasing teacher-based salaries is directly related to improving services for Iowa students. She said the state wants the best and brightest going into education, and by increasing the base salary, that encourages more teachers to work in special education in the state. Everybody tells me you can't get a special education teacher in rural Iowa. We're not competitive, she said. So it makes sense for me to put it in a bill that is not only trying to correct a system to provide teachers the support that they need, but to also encourage teachers to go into the teaching profession by increasing the beginning salary. Our next article, McGee Joins County Conservation Board. The Pottawatomie County Board of Supervisors recently appointed new member Brittany McGee to the Pottawatomie County Conservation Board. They also reappointed Chris Ruhak of Council Bluffs to another term. McGee is the promotions coordinator for Pottawatomie County Public Health. She has a background in natural resources, including a degree in wildlife ecology and conservation from Northwest Missouri State. At its January 9th meeting, members of the Conservation Board elected their officers for 2024. Eric Ho of Underwood was elected president, Jerry Matheson of Council Bluffs as vice president, and Mary Kramer of Neola as secretary. These are hardworking and dedicated volunteer board members that help oversee the care of our natural resources and county parks, Supervisor Brian Shea who also serves as a liaison to the Conservation Board, said in a news release, We know Brittany will be a fine addition. Potomatomi County Conservation Executive Director Mark Shoemaker believes McGee will be a real asset to the board. We look forward to working with her to meet our mission of providing meaningful experiences with the unique natural resources and recreation opportunities of our county, Shoemaker said. This story, Chicken from Hell Once Roamed Midwest, by Rendon Rassius, out of the Charlotte Observer. Millions of years ago, a bird-like dinosaur known as the Chicken from Hell roamed the North American continent. Weighing around 170 pounds, it sported a toothless beak and was blanketed by a layer of feathers. The previously unknown prehistoric creature was recently identified using fossilized bones found in South Dakota, according to a study published last week in the journal PLOS-1. The bones, including a femur and tibia, were discovered in 
Meade County, which makes up a part of the Hell Creek Formation, a swath of sedimentary rock littered with the remains of old plant and animal life. While studying the bones, Oklahoma State University researchers initially thought they might belong to a larger dinosaur called Anzu Wylia. However, histology tests revealed they had stumbled upon a brand new species. The newfound creature is a type of Oviraptosaur, a family of human-sized theropods with slender limbs and grasping hands. Characterized by their unusual skulls, they were found throughout North America and Asia during the late Cretaceous period, which lasted from about 100 to 66 million years ago. The new species was named Ianfron infernalis, which translates to Pharaoh's dawn chicken from hell. It would have stood about three feet high at the hip and had wings and a short tail, Kyle Atkins Weltman, one of the study authors, said in an OSU news release. It's hard to tell its diet because of the toothless beak, Atkins Weltman added. Both herbivorous and omnivorous Aviraraptosaur species have been previously discovered. The creature would have been social, employing an avian-like brain organization, researchers said. Okay, we're going to turn to nation and world news. Headline, U.S. Base attacks kills th- U.S. Base Attack Kills Three, Dozen Injured in Drone Strike as Biden Vows Response. This is out of the Associated Press. Out of, from Columbia, South Carolina, President Joe Biden said Sunday that the U.S. shall respond after three American troops were killed and dozens more were injured in an overnight drone strike in northeast Jordan near the Syrian border. Biden blamed the Iran-backed militias for the first U.S. fatalities after months of strikes by such groups against American forces across the Middle East since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Biden, who was traveling in South Carolina, asked for a moment of silence during an appearance at a Baptist church banquet hall. We had a tough day last night in the Middle East. We lost three brave souls in an attack on one of our bases, he said. After the moment of silence, Biden added, and we shall respond. With an increasing risk of military escalation in the region, U.S. officials were working to conclusively identify the precise group responsible for the attack, but they have assessed that one of several Iranian-backed groups was behind it. Biden said in a written statement that the United States will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, We will take all necessary actions to defend the United States, our troops, and our interests. Iran-backed fighters in East Syria began evacuating their posts, fearing U.S. airstrikes, according to Omar Abu Leila, a Europe-based activist who heads the Dir Izor 24 media outlet. He told the Associated Press that the areas are the strongholds of Mayadeen and Bukamal. According to U.S. official, the number of troops injured by the one-way attack drone rose to at least 34. Another official, who also spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss details not made public, said a large drone struck the base, which two other American officials identified as an installation in Jordan known as Tower 22. It is along the Syrian border and is used largely by troops involved in the advise and assist mission for Jordanian forces. The small installation, which Jordan does not publicly disclose, includes U.S. engineering, aviation, logistics, and security troops. Austin said the troops were deployed there to work for the lasting defeat of ISIS. 
Three officials said the drone struck near the troops' sleeping quarters, which they said explained the high casualty count. The U.S. military base at Al-Tanf in Syria is just 12 miles north of Tower 22. The Jordanian installation provides a logistical hub for U.S. forces in Syria, including those at Al-Tanf, which is near where the borders of Iraq, Syria, and Jordan intersect. Jordanian state television quoted Muhannad Mubadin, a government spokesman, as insisting the attack happened across the border in Syria. U.S. troops long have used Jordan, a kingdom bordering Iraq, Israel, the Palestinian territory of the West Bank, Saudi Arabia, and Syria as a basing point. Activists hurl soup at Mona Lisa. Farver set up tractor blockades. Officials vow to beef up security. And this is out of the Associated Press and Paris. France's Interior Ministry on Sunday ordered a large deployment of security forces around Paris as angry farmers threatened to head toward the capital, hours after climate activists hurled soup at the glass protecting the Mona Lisa painting at the Louvre Museum. French farmers are putting pressure on the government to respond to their demands for better remuneration for their produce, less red tape, and protection against cheap imports. Speaking after an emergency meeting on Sunday evening, Interior Minister Gerard Darmanin said 15,000 police officers were being deployed, mostly in the Paris region. Darmanin said he ordered security forces to prevent any blockade of Rungus International Market, which supplies the capital and surrounding region with much of its fresh food, and the Paris airports as well, as to ban any convoy of farmers from entering the capital and any other big city. He said that helicopters will monitor convoys of tractors. Darmanin said possibly all eight highways heading to Paris will be blocked Monday from midday and urged car and truck drivers to anticipate blockades. Difficulties will obviously be very important, he said. Farmers of the Rural Coordination Union in the Lot at Garonne region, where the protests originated, said they plan to use their tractors Monday to head toward the Rungus International Market. France's two biggest farmers' unions said in a statement that their members based in areas surrounding the Paris region would seek to block all major roads to the capital with the aim of putting the city under siege starting Monday afternoon. Earlier on Sunday, two climate activists hurled soup at the glass protecting the Mona Lisa in the Louvre Museum and shouted slogans advocating for a sustainable food system. In a video posted on social media, two women with the words food reposte written on their t-shirts could be seen passing under a security barrier to get closer to the painting and throwing soup at the glass protecting Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece. What's the most important thing? They shouted, art or right to a healthy and sustainable food. Our farming system is sick, they added. Louvre employees could then be seen putting black panels in front of the Mona Lisa and asking visitors to evacuate the room. Paris police said that two people were arrested following the incident. On its website, the Food Reposte group said the French government is breaking its climate commitments and called for the equivalent of the country's state-sponsored health care system to be put in place to give people better access to healthy food while providing farmers a decent income. Angry French farmers have been using their tractors for days to set up road blockades and slow traffic across France. They also dumped stinking agricultural waste at the gates of government offices. On Friday, the government announced a series of measures that farmers said don't fully address their demands. 
Those include drastically simplifying certain technical procedures. House Republicans move toward impeaching Mayorkas. This is by Rebecca Santana out of the Associated Press. In Washington, House Republicans on Sunday released two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as they vowed to swiftly push forward with election year efforts to oust him over what they call his failure to manage the U.S.-Mexico border. The rare step against a cabinet member drew outrage from Democrats and the agency as a politically motivated stunt lacking the constitutional basis to remove Mayorkas from office. Republicans contend Mayorkas is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors that amount to a willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law on immigration and a breach of the public trust. Impeachment, they say, is Congress's only viable option. Alejandro and Mayorkas willfully and systematically refused to comply with the immigration laws, failed to control the border to the detriment of national security, compromised public safety, and violated the rule of law and separation of powers in the Constitution to the manifest injury of the people of the United States, the impeachment resolution says. Only once in American history has a cabinet secretary been impeached, William Belknap, President Ulysses Grant's war secretary in 1876, over kickbacks in government contracts. Sunday's announcement comes as their other impeachment drive to impeach Democratic President Joe Biden in relation to his son Hunter's business dealings has struggled to advance. And in some short, brief articles here, Israel ceasefire talks will continue. In Rafah, the Gaza Strip, Israel said significant gaps remain after ceasefire talks on Sunday with the United States, Qatar, and Egypt, but called them constructive and said they would continue in the week ahead, a tentative sign of progress on a potential agreement that could see Israel pause military operations against Hamas in exchange for the release of remaining hostages. The war has killed more than 26,000 Palestinians, according to local health officials, destroyed vast swaths of Gaza, and displaced nearly 85% of the territory's people. Israel says its air and ground offensive has killed more than 9,000 militants without providing evidence. The October 7th Hamas attack in southern Israel killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and militants took about 250 hostages. The statement from Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office on the ceasefire talks did not say what the significant gaps were. Iran says it launched three satellites into orbit out of Jerusalem. Iran said Sunday it successfully launched three satellites into space with a rocket that had multiple failures in the past, the latest for a program that's the West, that the West says improves Tehran's ballistic missiles. The launch comes as heightened tensions grip the wider Middle East over Israel's continued war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip, sparking fears of a regional conflict. While Iran has not intervened militarily in the conflict, it has faced increased pressure within its theocracy for action after a deadly Islamic State suicide bombing earlier this month and as proxy groups like Yemen's Houthi rebels conduct attacks linked to the war. Ukraine. Employees from a Ukrainian arms firm conspired with defense ministry officials to embezzle almost $40 million earmarked to buy 100,000 mortar shells for the war with Russia, Ukraine's security service reported. The SBU said late Saturday that five people were charged. 
South Carolina, President Joe Biden on Sunday extolled the existence of black churches, saying the world would be a different place if they were not around to show people the power of faith during times of darkness. The Democratic president spoke at St. John Baptist Church on the final day of a two-day visit to South Carolina. Los Angeles, four people are dead following what police in Los Angeles characterized as a murder-suicide in the Granada Hills area on Saturday. Officers responded shortly before 7 p.m. to a report of a shooting and found four people who were pronounced dead at the scene. In a church attack, two masked assailants attacked a Roman Catholic church in Istanbul during a Sunday mass, killing one person. Interior Minister Ali Yerlinkaya said in a statement on X, formerly known as Twitter. Yerlinkaya said later that two men were arrested in the attack. North Korea. South Korea's military said Sunday that North Korea fired several cruise missiles over waters near a major military shipyard on the country's eastern coast, extending a streak in weapons tests that are worsening tensions with the United States, South Korea, and Japan. Finland election. Former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb won the first round of Finland's presidential election Sunday and will face runner-up ex-Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto in a runoff next month. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section. A lot of sports to talk about in the NFL. We'll start there. The playoffs. Chiefs punch ticket to Vegas. Defense helps Casey earn its fourth trip to Super Bowl in five years. This was from the Associated Press out of Baltimore. Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey were at their magnificent best in the first half, and Kansas City's defense delivered another masterpiece against Lamar Jackson and Baltimore, helping the Chiefs reach the Super Bowl for the fourth time in five years with a 17-10 victory in the AFC Championship game Sunday. Kelsey caught 11 passes for 116 yards and a touchdown, and now the big question at next month's Super Bowl in Las Vegas is whether his girlfriend, Taylor Swift, will be able to make it there in the middle of her tour. The pop star was on hand again Sunday, and the 34-year-old Kelsey was at his best. Kansas City will face San Francisco on February 11th, and a win would make the Chiefs the first team to win it all in back-to-back seasons since the New England Patriots 19 years ago. Swift's presence has turned the Chiefs into even more of a glamour team than they already were, but it's been more of a blue-collar performance on the field this season. Aside from Kelsey, Mahomes hasn't had the receiving playmakers he's enjoyed in past years. Instead, the defense has been a big part of why Kansas City won the AFC West and eventually prevailed in two straight road playoff games against Buffalo and Baltimore to win the conference. The Chiefs led 17-7 at halftime, and Justin Tucker's 43-yard field goal with 2 minutes 34 seconds to play was the only scoring of the second half. Baltimore kicked deep after that, and on third and nine, Mahomes connected with Marquise Valdez-Scantling, one of his most maligned receivers, on a 32-yard pass that sealed the game. Mahomes went 30 of 39 for 241 yards and a touchdown. Jackson could win his second MVP after leading Baltimore to the league's best record and point differential during the regular season. But the Ravens allowed touchdowns on the first two Kansas City possessions and appeared a bit panicky at times after that. Baltimore made undisciplined mistakes all game, while Kansas City looked the part of the team making its sixth straight appearance in the conference title game. With the Ravens down by 10 in the third quarter, rookie Zay Flowers caught a 54-yard pass to the Kansas City 10 
then was flagged for taunting after the play. Moments later, he fumbled near the goal line, and the Ravens ended up with no points. That was one of several frustrating moments for Baltimore fans, whose city was hosting an AFC championship game for the first time since January 1971, when the Colts beat the Oakland Raiders. Jackson went 20 of 37 for 272 yards and a touchdown, but Baltimore never really exploited its perceived advantage on the ground. Jackson raced under one of his own tipped passes in the first half for a 13-yard reception, but he also turned the ball over twice, including a forced pass into heavy coverage that was picked off in the end zone with with 6 minutes 45 seconds left in the game. San Francisco Treat 49ers Rally for NFC Title Purdy leads 27-point outburst in second half to reach Super Bowl. This is by Josh DeBow out of Santa Clara, California. Brock Purdy threw for 267 yards and a touchdown, and the San Francisco 49ers rallied from 17 points down at halftime to beat the Detroit Lions 34-31 on Sunday and reach the Super Bowl. The 49ers scored 17 points in an eight-minute span of the third quarter to tie the NFC Championship game and then pulled away in the fourth quarter to earn a rematch against Kansas City after losing to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl four years ago. San Francisco mounted the fourth comeback ever from 17 points down or more in a conference title game thanks to some big plays by Purdy and bad mistakes from the Lions, including two failed fourth downs in field goal range. Detroit fell short of reaching the first Super Bowl in franchise history. After being questioned about whether he could lead a comeback, Purdy has now done it twice in as many weeks. He engineered a game-winning drive in the fourth quarter to beat Green Bay last week and then had an even bigger comeback against the Lions. Christian McCaffrey had two TD runs and little-used backup Elijah Mitchell scored on a three-yard run to make it 34-24 with three minutes, two seconds to play as the Niners got over the conference title game hump after losing the past two seasons. The Niners blew a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter of the NFC Championship game against the Los Angeles Rams two years ago and then were forced to play much of last year's title game loss at Philadelphia without a functioning quarterback after Purdy injured his elbow on the opening drive and fourth-stringer Josh Johnson left with a concussion early in the third quarter. But San Francisco managed to make the long journey back to this stage and now is in position to deliver the franchise its record-tying sixth Super Bowl title and first since the 1994 season. San Francisco's heralded front seven had no answer in the first half for Detroit's offensive line, which repeatedly opened big holes in giving the backs several yards even before first contact. The Lions ran for 148 yards in the first half, getting TD runs from Williams, David Montgomery, and Gibbs. Michael Badley added a late field goal to give Detroit a 24-7 lead at the half, tied for the second biggest scoring output for a road team in the first half of a conference title game since the NFL-AFL merger. You're listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on I'm sorry, you're not either. You're listening to the Daily Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll return for some more sports. Let's see. I'm going to 
see if we can get to the NBA. Okay. Mathurin scores 24 to help send Pacers past Grizzlies out of Indianapolis. Benedict Mathurin scored 24 points off the bench. Jalen Smith sank a go-ahead three-pointer late, and the Indiana Pacers won their third consecutive home game, 116-110, to over the Memphis Grizzlies on Sunday. The game was tied at 107 when Smith drilled his third three-pointer with 3 minutes 10 seconds remaining. He finished with 19 points and 10 rebounds. The Pacers didn't trail again. Mathurin, who scored 19 points in the first half, made 9 of 14 shots, including three three-pointers. He also grabbed 7 rebounds. The Bulls, 104, trail Blazers 96. DeMar DeRozan had 20 points, and Chicago snapped a two-game losing streak by winning at Portland. Kobe White had 15 points and 10 assists for the Bulls, while Andre Drummond came off the bench with 15. Jeremy Grant led Portland with 24 points, while DeAndre Ayton had 22 and 12 rebounds. The Blazers have lost four of their last five games. Pistons 120, Thunder 104. Jalen Duran had 22 points and a career-high 21 rebounds as Detroit ended Oklahoma City's five-game winning streak with a comfortable home victory. Duran's performance included a career-high nine of Detroit's 15 offensive rebounds. Jaden Ivey added 19 points for the Pistons, who played without leading scorer Cade Cunningham, who was a late scratch for what the team termed injury management. Cunningham returned from a knee injury on Saturday. Hawks 126, Raptors 125. Sadiq Bay dunked in a Trey Young miss with a 1.1 seconds left to lift host Atlanta to a victory over Toronto. It was the fifth straight loss for the shorthanded Raptors. The Raptors had taken a one-point lead when a young turnover in the backcourt led to a Scotty Barnes dunk with seven seconds remaining. Magic 113, Suns 98. Paolo Banchero scored 26 points as Orlando beat Phoenix at home, overcoming Devin Booker's 44-point effort. Phoenix went more than eight minutes without a field goal in the fourth quarter, losing its second straight after a seven-game winning streak. Booker was 17 of 26 from the field, making one of two three-point attempts and hit nine of 11 free throws, but he had only two points in the Suns' 11-point fourth quarter. In the NHL, Pens enter break with work to do. Prior to a critical pair of home games, Brian Rust was frank about the Pittsburgh Penguins' unsavory position in the standings. The winger proclaimed the Penguins were in a dogfight, evidenced by their then 12th place position in the Eastern Conference. After sneaking out a point Friday night in a shootout loss to the Florida Panthers, Lars Eller felt the urgency of the Penguins needing to get two against the Montreal Canadiens on Saturday night at PPG Paints Arena. For me, it was the most important game of the season in a lot of ways, Eller said. It's not like we were out of it if we lose, but I feel like this was kind of a must-win game. They indeed <clears throat> excuse me, secured a victory by a 3-2 tally in overtime thanks to a Marcus Pedersen game winner. It vaulted the Penguins up to 10th in the East with four games in hand on their intrastate rival Philadelphia Flyers, who currently possess the conference's final playoff spot. For morale purposes, the victory was significant, considering the Penguins won't be in action again until after the All-Star break when they host the Winnipeg Jets on February 6th. But in terms of separating themselves from the pack, the Penguins have much work to do. Only two Eastern Conference squads appear to truly be out of playoff contention. 
the Ottawa Senators, and Columbus Blue Jackets. Just four points separate the ninth-place New York Islanders and the Canadians, who slot in at 14th as of Saturday evening. Sunday's games, the Bulls 4, Kings 3 in overtime. Braden Shen scored one minute and four seconds into overtime to help host St. Louis beat Los Angeles on Sunday for its fifth consecutive victory. Jordan Kyrow had one goal and two assists for St. Louis, which surrendered at least four goals in each of its previous four games against Los Angeles. Pavel Buchnevich and Nick Letty also scored, and Joel Hoffer made 30 saves. Kraken 4, Blue Jackets 2. Jordan Eberle had two goals and an assist in Seattle's three-goal first period, and the Kraken beat visiting Columbus. Jared McCann had a goal and an assist. Brandon Tenev also scored, and Oliver Bjorkstrand had two assists as Seattle extended its point streak to three games. Joey Decord stopped 30 shots. Yegor Chinnikov scored twice in the third period for the Blue Jackets. Okay, we're going to go back for some short little articles in the in, in, uh, NFL and the NBA and the NHL. We'll start with the NFL around the league. Flowers' key miscues in red zone helped doom Ravens out of Baltimore. Ravens rookie receiver Zay Flowers made a couple of major mistakes that cost his team points late in Sunday's AFC Championship game loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. The biggest came early in the fourth quarter when the Ravens were down 17-7 to when he reached the ball into the end zone trying to score a touchdown that would have cut the deficit to three. Instead, he fumbled as corner, cornerback Legereus Sneed knocked the ball out of his hands inside the one-yard line and the Chiefs recovered. A few plays earlier, Flowers was flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct for taunting after he spun the ball while standing directly above Sneed, who tackled him following a 54-yard reception from Lamar Jackson. The penalty on Flowers, one of many by the undisciplined Ravens throughout the game, backed up Baltimore 15 yards. To add injury to the series of events, Flowers appeared to cut a finger on his left hand when he slammed it on a bench after the fumble. With Allen's support, Bills keep Brady as O.C., Out of Buffalo, New York, Josh Allen's vote of support, coupled with a desire to maintain continuity, led to Joe Brady taking over as the Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator on a full-time basis. The team announced the decision on Sunday, less than a week after Buffalo's season ended with a 27-24 loss to Kansas City in the divisional playoff round. Brady closed the season as the Bills' interim coordinator after Ken Dorsey was fired in mid-November. In the final seven regular season and two playoff games under Brady, the Bills' offense showed an increased level of balance with a renewed emphasis placed on the running attack. The decision comes after the Bills held a short interview process, which included Brady last week. Brady also interviewed with the Atlanta Falcons for their head coaching vacancy, which has since been filled by Raheem Morris. And briefly, the Browns, a person familiar with the team's plan, tells the Associated Press the Cleveland Browns have hired former quarterback Ken Dorsey as their new offensive coordinator. Dorsey was fired as Buffalo's offensive coordinator earlier this season. Dorsey played for Cleveland from 2006 to 2008 and is one of 37 quarterbacks to start for the franchise since 1999. And stat of the day, 156. 
With 11 catches for 116 yards on Sunday, Kansas City tight end Travis, Travis Kelsey broke Jerry Rice's NFL career record for the most catches in the postseason. He now has 156 in 21 playoff games. Okay, and we'll go back to the NBA and see what's going on around the NBA. Randall is out with a dislocated shoulder. Out of New York, Julius Randall won't play for the New York Knicks on Monday in Charlotte because of a dislocated right shoulder. Randall was hurt Saturday with 4 minutes 27 seconds remaining in the Knicks' 125-109 victory over Miami. He was driving to the basket when Heat rookie Jamie Jacquez Jr. stepped in front of him trying to take a charge. Randall landed hard and once he finally got up, he was holding the area around his shoulder and quickly went to the locker room. Coach Tom Thibodeau said after the game that Randall was being evaluated by the Knicks medical staff. The Knicks have not provided an update, but ruled out their star forward on the injury report Sunday afternoon. Randall averages 24 points, 9.2 rebounds, and 5 assists for the Knicks. The Nets' Simons could return Monday. Out of New York, Ben Simons could return to the Brooklyn Nets. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. The Brooklyn Nets on Monday after missing nearly three months because of a pinched nerve in his back. Simons has played in just six games this season, none since November 6th, and has missed the last 38. He practiced Saturday with the Nets' NBA G League affiliate, and coach Jack Vaughn said afterward there was a high likelihood that the number one pick in the 2016 draft would play Monday against Utah. The Nets listed Simons as probable to play Sunday in their injury report. Simons has battled back injuries since the Nets acquired him from Philadelphia nearly two years ago. The Nets originally thought his injury in November was in his left hip before determining it was caused by an impingement in his lower back. And to the NHL, Lane enters player assistance program. Columbus Blue Jackets forward Patrick Lane is entering the NHL NHLPA player assistance program, the league and union announced Sunday. Lane will be away from the team indefinitely while he receives care from the joint program. Under the terms of the program, he can return to the team for practice and then games when cleared by administrators. Patrick has our complete support and our sole concern is his well-being, said Blue Jackets general manager Yarmo Kakalainen, adding the organization would have no further comment out of respect for Lane. Rangers, Scheidel ruled out for the season. Keitel? New York Rangers forward, Philip C-H-Y-T-I-L. Keitel? Will miss the rest of the NHL season after experiencing an injury setback. He's 24 and has not played since early November because of suspected concussion issues that led him to go home to his native Chechia to skate with Jaromir Jagger, among others, in an attempt to get back. The organization's top priority throughout this process has been Philip's health, and we will continue to fully support him in his recovery with an attempt to return for the 2024-25 season, the Rangers said Sunday in a statement calling it only an upper body injury. And stat of the day out of the NHL is the Edmonton Oilers reached the All-Star break with a 16-game winning streak, the second longest in league history. The streak ties the 2016-17 Columbus Blue Jackets for the second longest streak ever. And I skipped the stat of the day for the NBA. 
That is 110. LeBron James recorded the 110th triple-double of his career Saturday night against the Golden State Warriors, notching 36 points, a career-high 20 boards, and 12 assists. There are some games listed tonight, but they do not tell me the channel. So, sorry about that. Uh, there's no, really no point in telling you that if we don't know where you can view it at. Okay, I'm going to turn to an article here by Lindsay Bauer. Beekeeper tops quiet weekend at box office. Movie theaters and audiences settled for seconds this weekend. With no new wide releases on the schedule, a mob of holdovers sustained the North American box office, which was led by The Beekeeper in its third week of release. Amazon MGM Studios' Jason Statham, actioner, earned $7.4 million to take the number one spot, according to Studio Estimates Sunday. It was down only 14% from the previous weekend and brings its running domestic total to $42.3 million. Globally, it has crossed $100 million. Paramount's Mean Girls musical, which is also in its third weekend, was close behind with $7.3 million. The movie has now earned $60.8 million in North America. In third place, Warner Brothers Wonka added $5.9 million to its seventh weekend as the Timothy Chalamet-led musical inches closer to $200 million domestically. It's currently at $195.2 million in North America and $552 million globally. Rounding out the top five were Universal and Illumination's Migration with $5.1 million, which pushed it over the $100 million mark domestically, and Sony's romantic comedy, Anybody, excuse me, Anyone But You, with $4.8 million, bringing its total to $71.2 million. Overall, it's a very slow weekend in terms of sheer box office, but a fantastic weekend to be a moviegoer. Goer said Paul Deragarabedian, the senior media analyst for Comscore. The strikes created a lot of headwind, but the disruption to the release calendar is creating opportunities and potential. It's an ever-changing ecosystem. Those that benefited included the Hindi-language action film Fighter, which debuted its sixth place with $3.7 million, Godzilla Minus One, which was released in black and white for a week, and cracked the top ten and several awards contenders. This was the first movie-going weekend following Oscar nominations, while many top contenders are already available to watch in the home, including Oppenheimer, Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, and The Holdovers, Several films still in theaters got sizable boosts from the buzz. Amazon and MGM's American Fiction, nominated for five awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Jeremy Wright, uh, sorry, for Jeffrey Wright, got a 65% bump in its seventh week with $2.9 million in ticket sales. Searchlight's Poor Things, nominated for 11 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress for Emma Stone, got a 43% boost from last weekend with an estimated $3 million. The Yorgos Lathamos film has now earned $51.1 million globally. To have high-quality Oscar contenders rise above the noise is really important, Deragabedian said. Because it's a quiet weekend, these films were really able to make their mark in the top ten. A24's The Zone of Interest, which had five nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director for Jonathan Glazer, expanded to 317 square 
screens where it earned $1.1 million. The studio said most audiences in top markets were under 35. Universal had leading Oscar nominee Oppenheimer in 1,262 theaters, where it earned an additional million dollars this weekend. Focus Features also added 1,140 screens for its big Oscar contender, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, which is also streaming on Peacock. It added an estimated $520,000, bringing its running total to $19.3 million. The Holdovers also earned $3.3 million internationally for a $31.2 million global total. Okay, I'm going to read Dear Amy, or excuse me, Ask Amy. Stepmother tired of having to suck it up. Dear Amy, my husband and I blended our two families 24 years ago. My husband's middle son, Brett, has always been difficult. Last year, my beautiful 40-year-old son died suddenly and unexpectedly. Two weeks after his death, Brett and his four-year-old son came out and stayed with us. Brett and my husband expected me to cook, clean, and pick up after all of them. It was awful. If I asked Brett not to let his son run around the house with food, I got a tongue lashing. My husband thinks I'm being dramatic, so he says nothing to his son. Now my other stepson, his wife, and their two children are due to stay with us next month to go skiing. They have no rules for their darling children, and my husband refuses to say anything to them. I have been told to suck it up and be an adult. I have thought of leaving while they are here to visit, but my beautiful home would probably be in a shambles when I return. Your thoughts? And that letter was from Depressed and Disappointed. Amy says, Dear Depressed, I'm so sorry for your loss and for what you are going through now. Your household dynamic leaves little room for you to grieve and find comfort. Your husband holds the key to the dysfunction and lack of respect in your household. You quite obviously believe that you have no voice. I assume that the dynamic between you two is well established, but I wonder if your son's death has changed your perspective and perhaps opened your eyes to your husband's lack of support and respect. If he saw you as an important and equal partner in your own home, his children would too. If he saw supported and respected your needs and boundaries, his children would too. Now that you are aware of this dynamic, I hope you will assert your own rights. When this next group of family members visit, if you don't want to see them or serve them, then yes, you should leave. This would be your version of sucking it up and being an adult. Before you go, you could tell your husband quite plainly that you're taking a break and that you'd appreciate it if the house was in good shape when you returned. And another, Dear Amy, gift giving is my love language and I really go above and beyond to give gifts to friends and family members for their special days. I genuinely enjoy doing this for others. However, I recently celebrated my birthday. I got phone calls and texts from the people I'm closest to and one person sent me a card, but I didn't receive any gifts at all. I'm really upset and have decided to stop giving to all these people. Do you think I'm doing the right thing? That was from Cheerful Giver. And Amy says, Dear Cheerful, if giving and receiving gifts is your love language, then you might feel better about the situation by reconsidering your definition of gifts. Your friends and family members remembered your birthday and got in touch with you. If you opened your eyes to these expressions, you might see these relationships themselves as gifts that keep on giving. And how about a little bit today in history? Today's highlight on January 29, 1936, the first inductees of Baseball's Hall of Fame, including Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Onus Wagner, Walter Johnson, and Christy Mathewson, were named in Cooperstown, New York. 
Also on this date, in 1820, King George III died at Windsor Castle at age 81. He was succeeded by his son, who became King George IV. In 1919, the ratification of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, establishing the prohibition of alcohol, was certified by Acting Secretary of State Frank L. Polk. In 1963, poet Robert Frost died in Boston at age 88. In 1964, Stanley Kubrick's nuclear war satire, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, premiered in New York, Toronto, and London. On the state in 1979, President Jimmy Carter formally welcomed Chinese Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping to the White House following the establishment of diplomatic relations. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan announced in a nationally broadcast message that he and Vice President George H.W. Bush would seek re-election in the fall. In 1995, the San Francisco 49ers became the first team in NFL history to win five Super Bowl titles, beating the San Diego Chargers 49-26 in Super Bowl 29. In 1998, a bomb rocked an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, killing security guard Robert Sanderson and critically injuring nurse Emily Lyons. The bomber, Eric Rudolph, was captured in May of 2003 and is serving a life sentence. In 2002 on this date, in his first State of the Union address, President George W. Bush said terrorists were still threatening America, and he warned of an axis of evil consisting of North Korea Iran, and Iraq. In 2007, Kentucky Derby winner Barbaro was euthanized because of medical complications eight months after his gruesome breakdown at the Preakness Stakes. In 2013, the Justice Department ended its criminal probe of the Deepwater Horizon disaster and Gulf of Mexico oil spill with a U.S. US judge agreeing to let London-based oil giant BP PLC plead guilty to manslaughter charges for the deaths of 11 rig workers and pay a record $4 billion in penalties. And finally, in 2017, six people were killed in a shooting at a Quebec City mosque during evening prayers. Alexander Bissonnette, who was arrested nearby, pleaded guilty to murder and attempted murder charges and was sentenced to life in prison. And finally, we'll do a couple of the entertainment briefs. John Cena wants to be more understanding. John Cena is trying to be more understanding of people who want his time in public. The Argyle actor and WWE legend made headlines last year when a fan interrupted his meal with a friend and started performing his signature, You Can't See Me, hand wave taunt, and the 46-year-old actor managed to stay calm as he asked the stranger to let him enjoy some time with his friends. The fan apologized as Sena thanked him for respecting his wishes, and now the star has told the Impulsive podcast, I think everyone has their line, but each day I'm more and more understanding of this crazy life, and I try to be more and more understanding of anyone who asks for my time. Sena, who said he has a few coffee shops he enjoys frequenting, where he gets some privacy, said he is big on hard work, loyalty, and respect. He added to fellow WWE star Logan Paul, When you get emotional about something, it's tough to make sense of it all. I'm not at all perfect, but I try to be who you say you are. I also try to have more empathy now every day. And De Niro gets tearful as he talks being a father again. 
Robert De Niro grew tearful as he talked about his wondrous baby daughter. The 80-year-old actor and his girlfriend, Tiffany Chen, welcomed little Gia into the world in April, and he said his own, he only has to look at his little girl for all his worries to melt away. Speaking to ARP, the magazine's February-March 2024 issue, he teared up as he said, It feels great. Everything that I'm consumed with or worried about just goes away when I look at her. It's wondrous. When she gets older, who knows? But that very sweet way she has of looking at you, taking you in, thinking and watching and observing. As well as being a proud father, the Meet the Parents star also adores his pets. Showing off a photo of his daughter, Helen, his second child, with ex-wife Grace Hightower, he said, This is my about-to-be 12-year-old daughter, and that giant cloud all around her is a Bernice Mountain Dog. He's no longer with us, but I've got a bunch of little dogs now. You know, I just really like animals. And that brings us to the today's to the end of today's reading of the Daily Nonpareil. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.